Father God, we uh, thank you once again that your word is true. And we pray that you would fill us with your truth. And we pray that you would be more real than our fears. Amen. This, well, this year, this decade, this week it seems, never, never a week goes by without something that brings us fear. Physical fear, I mean. Probably the most visceral of all the fears. The fear of physical danger. 300 times, as we said, uh, the Bible tells us to not be afraid, do not fear. And there is no more natural human fear than that fear of danger, the fight-flight response of, what's going to happen to me? The fear of the bullying, intimidating boss that you feel like you should have grown out of, but even as an adult you can feel physically intimidated by. The fear of being mugged or assaulted on the streets of London by a moped gang. The fear of the random act of terror. The fear of, uh, of what's going to happen to your children beyond your control, outside of your ability to look after them. That's even worse in some ways than the fear of what will happen to us. And I think at the moment we're still trying to come to terms with a new reality in, uh, in London. That uh, the fear of terrorist incidents and the physical dangers that we can face from that is not a short-term thing. From the end of the, of the Cold War, we in the West have lived in a time of unparalleled security. Do you want me to go back to this? This is, or is it coming through all right? I think we're all right. Uh, we've lived in a, a time actually of unparalleled security when you look across human history, across culture. And we've got used to thinking that I will have my 80 years and life will be pretty secure because that's what it's been for so many people for so long. But it's dawning on us that that is no longer the case. That the past 40 or 50 years were not normal. And that normal is living with the threat of serious physical violence. Of terrifying terrorist incidents at any time. That is the new normal. And I think a lot of us are struggling to get our heads around it. And so how do you respond to that? Now, some respond by making light of it. Uh, after the uh, 2017 um, terror attack on the Westminster Bridge, there was a, <laughs> there was a typically London response, um, an article in a newspaper. Londoners told terror wannabes they will never even scrape the top five of things that plague their tired, jumbled minds on a daily basis. 32-year-old accounts assistant Tom Booker said, I already have nightmares on a rotating basis about my barely affordable rent, work-related exhaustion, meeting a partner who isn't just weird, growing older in a lonely city, and a lingering stomachache that I reckon is an ulcer. If terrorists think they can make me more scared than I already am, good luck with that. As far as nagging daily anxieties go, I'm afraid they'll have to take a number and join the back of the queue. <laughs> and we know what they mean. The worrying thing here is it was the married couples who laughed loudest about the uh, meeting a, a partner who isn't weird. Um, yeah, there's nothing so weird as the person you know. Uh, when we're not mocking, there is the stoical defiance, the, uh, it, who knows whether it was genuine or not, the, the tube poster that was, um, was put up the day afterwards. All terrorists are politely reminded that this is London, and whatever you do to us, we will drink tea and jolly will carry on. Thank you. Actually, there are some who go to far more extreme lengths to seek physical security. There was a, an article quite recently called The Billionaire's Apocalypse. 
the sort of title that clickbait, or not, I don't care, I'll fall for it, I want to know what it's about. And it's, uh, it's all about how ultra-rich are buying old nuclear bunkers in, um, in the States and having them luxuriously kitted out for survival when terrorists or war or climate change or mass civil unrest brings an end to uh, the political order. And so they're using their wealth to buy security should the worst happen. You know, secure bunker and five years supply of sourdough bread and quinoa salad. So they'll be all right. The, the billionaires are going to be okay. What I particularly liked was their description of the rest of us who cannot afford such luxuries. You can't afford a military bunker. They refer to us as the zombies. Uh, that's the unprepared masses who just get wiped out in the disaster movies. That's you and me. But what about us, the zombies? When the defiant memes have stopped circulating on Facebook and we still have to get up and go about our lives, what about us? The truth is I've had more conversations in the last two years than I ever imagined I would have with ordinary Londoners like you and me who say, I don't feel like I can get on the tube anymore. I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I'm just too afraid to even get on the tube these days. We need to find a way to deal with our fears so that we can go about daily life. How do you cope with visceral, physical fear? And Psalm 27 is a wonderful place to turn. It's a psalm of David, the king of Israel. Now, David knew a thing or two about physical threats. Uh, he protected his family's flocks from lions and bears in the wilderness when he was a teenager. He spent his 20s and his 30s as a soldier fighting battle after battle as Israel, his homeland, was being invaded repeatedly by the Philistines. And then he uh, was a fugitive hunted down by the king, Saul, for much of, his, uh, for much of the next few years. And even at the very end of his life, um, as an old man, he wasn't free from this. He, uh, his, uh, his own son launched a military coup and he had to flee for his life and return to the deserts where he'd been an outlaw as a, as a young man. He is a man who is worth listening to when we wrestle with fear because he's somebody who's not immune to it. He's not writing from a comfortable library. He's not writing a theological treatise sat in some leafy suburb. He is a man who knows what it is to write from a cave and who can speak to us as one who shares our fears. This is bloody battlefields and damp caves, not armchair theology. What do we see? Firstly, we see that he's surrounded but secure. Now, there doesn't uh, appear to be any indication of what particular incident this was that drove David to write, but frankly, it could have been so many incidents in his life. I think he's just reflecting in general terms about trusting God as he looks back on, on thousands of battles and escapades. And strikingly, you'll notice he does not start with prayer. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life, of whom shall I be afraid? He starts with praise. He looks to God before he looks to his troubles. Now sometimes I think that my prayers do not work when I'm feeling anxious. Because I may be talking to God, but basically I'm not trying to give my troubles to him. I'm trying to tell him how big they are. I'm just reminding myself, dear God, you have no idea what I'm facing. It is enormous, it's terrifying, and it's scary, and it's far too much for me to handle. Amen. Why don't I feel your peace, Lord? Well, it's pretty obvious. 
we need to have we need to remember Isaiah 40 we need to remember that before I'm going to know the peace of God and the freedom from fear I need to see my fears in perspective I need to look to who God is and I need to look at my fears in the light of God God needs to be the lens of my glasses that I look at everything through the reality of his character and his might needs to be the lenses through which I look at everything and the images um, are powerful God is light God is salvation. God is fortress. I think it's really striking that the first thing he says is that God is light. Fear is self and about darkness. Uh, the picture, um, is a, I think it's very, very helpful because every problem and anxiety is worse at night. And the fear of dark is just one of the most primal fears there is. To come to God is to see the sun rise and to chase away the darkness and the shadows and the fears that lurk. The first verse alone is fantastic, and it's because of that that David can say what he does in verses 2 to 3. When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. And I think the picture you have here is a child paralysed with fear in bed at night. Imagination running riot, unable to put a foot out of the bed because of fear of what's under the bed. You know the picture. But when they wake in the morning and she opens the curtains and light floods into the room, all the fears disappear. She can look under the bed now. She can look in the cupboard now. Because the room's full of light. And the fears have gone. Of course, it's not just children who are afraid of the dark. I suspect many of us here, as adults, have had experiences that have left us with a deep fear of the darkness. And we all need to know that God is light. Now David knows that God is with him, verses 2 to 3. And he knows that if God is with him, he's never outnumbered. God enabled him when he was a young, well not much more than a teenager, to defeat the mighty giant Goliath. And David has worked out some divine mathematics, which is that... Anything and anyone plus God equals a majority. Anything and anyone plus God outnumbers whoever's coming against them. It's the, ch- it's the playground taunt, you and whose army? Yeah, well, I'll get my brother. My dad's going to come and talk. When you've got God in your corner, nothing can trump that. He's surrounded, but he's secure. Because no matter what human foes are against him, he has God. And then we move from warfare to worship. The whole mood changes in verse 4 as we go from warfare to worship. Verse 4, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his sacred tent I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Now this is a run of psalms that focus on the house of the Lord, the temple. It's the place where God symbolically dwells. God dwells everywhere. But he said, look, um, because you struggle with that idea of I'm everywhere, there is one particular place where where symbolically I'll be. and, And if you want to come to meet me, if you come there... I'll, I'll meet you in a special way. If you pray towards the temple, I'll hear. It's like the telephone exchange up to heaven for the Old Testament Christians. 
Now it's different for us. Jesus says at the beginning of the New Testament that he is the temple. So you don't need to go to a particular place if you, if you want to meet God. You don't need to go to a particular place if you desperately need to pray to God. You just go through Jesus. Anytime, anywhere, you can come to God through Jesus. Now the big idea of these verses is that when we run to this God, we don't just find security, we also find delight. He sets me high on a rock and he welcomes me into his tent. Now if you're British, that may not fill you with delight. And on a weekend like this, the thought of camping is not an image that that just fills me with the warm fuzzies. But this is not the damp, miserable tent of the insufferable British summer holiday, uh, which is character building. This is the tent of the Middle Eastern ruler, luxurious, spacious, warm and full of Turkish delights. This isn't just security, in other words, high on a rock. This is intimacy. Welcome into my home, God is saying. And the reality of verse 4 is just stunning. One thing I ask, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. Here's the point. God is so, so glorious that if you just get a glimpse of him, then for the rest of your life you will never be satisfied until you have more. That's who God is. He is so, so glorious that if you just get a glimpse of him, you will never be satisfied except with more of him. And there's a vital lesson here. A healthy attitude to to the God of the Bible is is not a static thing. It is a dynamic. Let me explain. This is is the only tricky bit in one sense. You have to really concentrate. Um, The Bible reveals a couple of things about God, and we need to hold both of them in tension, and we'll continually need to turn from one to the other if we're going to have a healthy attitude towards God. The Bible tells us that we are both to fear God, and the Bible tells us that we are to love him. The Bible reveals that God is immense, that God is all-powerful, that God is a pure and a consuming fire, a holy God. And if we get that, then we ought to tremble. And every human who encounters God in the Bible falls flat on their faces though dead, and is terrified. No one can look upon me and live, the God of the Bible says. If you get who God is, you ought to be afraid. When Jesus is with the the disciples in the boat in Mark 4, and uh, he calms the storms, he never says anything about fear when they think they're going to drown in Mark 4. Mark deliberately avoids the use of the word fear when uh, a boat full of experienced fishermen is being swamped, and they think they're going to the bottom. The only time in the entire story it uses the word fear is when everything's dead calm. It uses the word fear when they realise Jesus is almighty God. They're terrified in dead calm when they're safe because God is in the boat with them and they know from the Old Testament how terrifying God is. If you get who God is, you ought to be afraid. But that's not the only thing the Bible says. The Bible also says that the God who you ought to be terrified of is a God who says... I want you to love me because I love you. Is a God who says, don't be afraid. Is a God who says, you ought to be consumed by my holy fire, but I will be consumed myself. My son will die in your place so that you can be welcome before me. And a healthy attitude to God needs to be both. We need always to understand that God is so awesome I ought to be terrified of him. 
but so kind, so gentle, so generous, so loving, that he tells me not to be afraid and welcomes me to him. That's who God is. It's always this dynamic of the God who says, fear me and love me. The God who we ought to be terrified of, who says, do not be afraid. Now, if you only focus on one of those truths, you will end up with a skewed view of God. If you only know his forgiveness and his love, you'll be tempted to a sort of casual, irreverent, God is my mate kind of attitude to God. But a God like that will never be big enough when life gets scary. He's just, you know, just one of your mates. If you only know his power and his holiness, you'll fear he's far too big and holy to care about you when you're afraid. But together they feed off each other in a dynamic. A God who is big enough to handle terrorists and bullies and storms at sea when you're in a ferry. A God who is big enough to deal with those things, but a God who is kind enough to care for you and for me. Now David knows both truths. He knows that God is the mighty warrior who outnumbers any army that attacks David. And he knows that God is the lover of his soul. That is who God is. The mighty warrior who is the lover of our souls. The God who takes us from warfare to worship. And so now at last he prays for protection in verses 7 to 12. And he calls on God, show me your face and teach me your ways. Verse 7. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me and do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject or forsake me, God my saviour. But again, this is a very different from the 999 call attitude to God of many of us. This is, he doesn't just want God's rescue. He wants God. You see that with the threefold repetition of face. It's a way of saying, God, I don't just want your shield of protection. I want you. I want your protection. I want a relationship with you, not just a rescue from you. And how incredible then that he can say, as he does in verse 10, Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Now I guess in a room this size, people have had varying experiences of parenting. But his point is, God is so kind and so forgiving and so patient that even the most loving mother, even the most indulgent mother, is nothing like as kind and as generous and as patient and as accepting as this God. The last verses then remind us that we can't seek God's face and at the same time ignore his voice. 11 to 12. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not hand me over to the desires of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. God is to be obeyed as well as to be enjoyed. Show me your face, Lord. Teach me your ways. Now, I think the big point of these verses that is very, very important for us to get is that it's, God is not just about protection. The big point of these verses is that you do not know God. You do not know Jesus unless you get this. If God offered you forgiveness for your sins, eternal life in his paradise kingdom, and the promise of his protection whenever we needed it through this life. Riches, health, the answer to every prayer we want. If he offered you all those things, 
but you wouldn't have a relationship with him. That would be a rubbish deal. An absolutely rubbish deal. The most precious thing we have from God is not his rescue, it's his rescue. It's not his protection, it's his protection. That we not only know the strong God in our corner, we know that God who is the lover of our soul looking after us. And so the, the psalm finishes with a note of confidence. And this is really a bedtime prayer, I think, verses 13 to 14. I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, take heart, and wait for the Lord. It's a declaration, I'll be okay tomorrow if I trust in this God. Wait for the Lord, look up at him, and you'll find strength in dark days. Wonderful. But what does it mean to say we'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? To put it bluntly, is this a promise that if you trust God... And as a terrorist in London tomorrow, you'll be all right. You'll be, able to, you'll be one of those Facebook memes of, uh, I was going to get on the tube, and, and then I had a funny feeling, and I just didn't get on, and it blew up in the tunnel, and God has been really kind. Does God guarantee that he will pull his people out of danger? And this is where it's very important that we look at the wider picture of the Bible. And of the Psalms. You see, David, who wrote this psalm, did not find that trusting God meant his enemies just disappeared. As I said, in his old age, he faced a military coup that drove him out of Jerusalem and saw his own son try to track him down and kill him in the desert. He understood that God would sometimes lead him through very dark and dangerous times. And King David in the Psalms is a shadow of the greater King, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ trusted God more perfectly than David, more perfectly than you, more perfectly than me. And Jesus Christ went to the cross, and God did not protect him from the cross. When he prayed in the garden, please, Father, take this cup from me, God said no. And he went to his death. But God had a greater plan than just rescuing him from that physical danger. God allowed Jesus to die, and then raised him from the dead. So that he might be the resurrection and the life and the forgiveness and the hope for all of us. And so if you trust in this God, you don't trust in one who promises you will never face anything that will make you afraid. And you will never be mugged, and you will never be hurt, and you will never be bullied. But you trust in a God who promises that I will look after you in these things. And I will bring you forgiven and safe to my eternal paradise kingdom. Uh, I'm sure you saw the, um, the awful pictures of the, the tsunami that hit um, Indonesia this week. And on Sulawesi, uh, one of the islands there, there was a Bible camp, a youth Bible camp. And so of course they were trusting in God, they were praying to him. So uh, the tsunami parted around that church and it was an oasis. And no, no I think 200 young people and their teachers were swept away. They trusted God. There's a desperate need for more Christian witness in Indonesia. But Christians get caught up in terrorist atrocities. Christians have car crashes. Christians get swept away by tsunamis. Christians get mugged. But Christians know that ultimately and eternally, 
God will bring us safely through death. Ultimately and eternally, God will keep us protected from his almighty judgment. And ultimately and eternally, we will join him in paradise forever. Okay, well then how does it free us from, how on earth does it free me from fear if I know I trust God and I may be swept away by a tsunami and I may not. I may get swept in a terrorist incident and I may not. I mean, how does that do me any good whatsoever? It's all very lovely, but what practical use is it? The practical use is this. When you walk out of this building, you and I are not in the hands of Islamic State or of blind chance. When you get in the car to go home, your fate is not in the hands of whoever happens to be driving. God is in control. And every single atom that twitches in this universe twitches in obedience to him. And he makes no mistakes and he has no rivals and no one can overpower him. There are no accidents or random incidents with God. He is sovereign and he is in control of every second of every day and every human who breathes. And he is good and he is loving. And so whatever happens only happens if your loving father permits it. Nothing is beyond his control that will happen to you. And when I struggle to understand and say, why me? Lord, why would you let this happen to me? Why would this happen to my family? And I hear silence from heaven. Well, I can look to the cross and see here is a God who uses terrible physical suffering to achieve the greatest good of all time. And so I think you can summarise things in a, ver- in a statement that sounds trite, but is actually full of truth, which is, I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. I don't know what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. If it is God's will that you survive today, then there is no power in this universe, human, natural or demonic, that can stop that from happening. That is the assurance you have as a child of God. If it is God's will that you will live to tomorrow, there is no power in this universe that can stop that from happening. When I was um, working up in the city and um, feeling guilty about earning money and still spending it like someone who obviously wasn't feeling that guilty, I used to get these emails from a guy called Simon Gillibo, who was a a missionary. exactly my age, and uh, he'd been a druggy boy at Harrow, who, but he was from a, a sort of missionary heritage family, and he'd, uh, he'd got properly converted in his late teenage years, and he'd gone out to Burundi just at the time of the, um, the Burundian Civil War that ended up spilling over into the Rwandan genocide in 1994 um, and beyond, and Burundi, it rumbled on and on and on, and this was around 1998, 1999, he was doing youth evangelism. And you get these emails as you're sort of walking to work, grumbling about the uncomfortable tube, uh, drinking your expensive coffee, and, uh, and wondering whether you've got enough money to go to the music festival and, and whatever, you know, all the, all the sort of London things you do as a young, in your young 20s. And you get this email coming in, you know, uh, running through the jungle with Bill Hartsier, uh, um, destroying my health, being shot at by rebels, another 300 children converted today, and uh, don't know if we're going to live tomorrow, we've been told that there is a, a price on our head, there's one time where one of the rebel leaders hated the fact that so many were being converted under him, and said, I'm going to track you down and cut out your eyes, 
uh, and then I'm going to kill you. You know, and, you, and it did make you feel pretty um, <laughs> shallow because you're sort of sat at your desk in the city and complaining the air conditioning is a little bit too low in the building. But uh, there's one very striking incident that Simon recounts. Uh, he and his, um, his friend were, were literally, they could hear the machine gun fire as the rebels were coming through. And his friend, um, Simon was terrified, and, and his friend said to him, Simon, and he quoted words from David Livingstone, the, the missionary. He said, Simon, we are immortal until our work for God is completed. Extraordinary. We are immortal until our work for God is completed. That's not the blind stupidity that says, oh, we'll be safe because God won't allow any bullets to hit us. But it is a settled recognition that we're in God's hands. And if he wants us to survive, then there is no rebel army in the world that can kill us. And if he decides it's time for us to, to die and to join him in glory, then there is nothing in the world I can do to stay alive. I urge you this morning to put your trust in this God for two reasons, for your sake and for the sake of this city. For your sake and for the sake of this city. I say for your sake, because only this God, Jesus Christ, has died for you and can bring you safely through to eternal life. And therefore there is nothing better, nothing more secure than to trust in him. And as we learn to trust him in this life, as we form the habit of reminding ourselves I know what my God is like and therefore I do not need to be afraid today. We'll be freeing ourselves from anxieties and fears. Now be careful of some of the trite things people say. We'll always know anxiety and fear. Paul's uh, told in the New Testament, he says famously in Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, um, which is one of the least encouraging verses in some ways in the Bible. I'm like, Great. So now I feel like a failure for being anxious as well as being anxious. You know, I've doubled my anxieties just by reading a verse of the Bible. Brilliant. Thanks, Paul. Actually, read the whole of Philippians and you'll find in chapter 2, he says, uh, I'm so, I'm going to have to send Epaphras back to you because he was so early almost died. But God had mercy on him, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Hmm. Hang on, I thought you were never anxious. Chapter 3, he says, um, for as I've often told you before, and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ, and they'll seek to take you away. Oh, hang on. You're full of tears of, of fear and concern for the churches. I thought you said, don't be anxious about No. When Paul says, don't be anxious about anything, he means, do not live a life defined by anxiety. But if you live in a real world, and if you care about people the way you should, you will be anxious, because stuff happens. And you can't control the people you care about. The difference for the Christian is there is something you can do about your anxieties. We're not Zen-like, Buddhist, no-care-about-anything types. We care deeply. We cry. We stay awake at night. Paul talks about that. He says that he's lost sleep over the churches that he loves. But we also know that when we are burdened with anxiety, when we can't sleep, when we're terrified, when the panic attacks grip our chest, I can turn to God, and it makes a difference. Now, it'll make a difference to who, uh, within your personality, some of us are pretty robust. I simply don't have the imagination to, to get concerned about um, terrorist incidents and, and flying in planes. I just don't have enough imagination to be concerned. Um, 
And so, you know, when things are happening in London, I think, oh gosh, this is a bit more likely to happen. It looks like to all the world like I'm amazing at trusting in God. I'm not. I'm just dull and no imagination. But when I pray to God about it, it makes me feel a little bit more secure. When the sort of person who is really, by disposition, very anxious and very twitchy and very nervous hears about those things and trusts in God, it will look different. The starting point is different. But here's the thing, it does make a difference. Whoever you are, God doesn't promise you will be freed from all fear and all anxiety. He promises that when you bring your fears and anxieties to him, you can rest in him. And it will make a difference. All of us will move one step closer to trust and one step further from anxiety. Trust in him for your sake. Because it is so much better to live life handed over to him. It's so much better to pass him our anxieties rather than to live in them. It is so much better to fling open the curtains of our life and let the, the light of God flood in rather than to sit in the darkness. But I say also, do it for the city's sake. Because as the people you live and work alongside and go to school with, see you facing the same anxieties that they face. But see you doing so, trusting in God. They will start to see that the hope and the peace and the freedom that you speak about, about Jesus, they're real things. And they may well put their trust in him too. I think there's a beautiful illustration of exactly what David wants us to do, what God wants us to do in Acts chapter 4. So Jesus has just been killed very recently, and Peter and John have been hauled before the Sanhedrin. The council that condemned Jesus to be tortured to death, that same group of people, and they've been warned, stop preaching about the resurrection of Jesus, or... And it doesn't take much of a genius to work out what's going to happen to them. And on their release, they, Acts 4.23, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all the chief priests and the elders and said to them, can you imagine how terrifying that would be? All these people had just been converted at Pentecost. Oh, isn't this wonderful new life in Jesus? And then Peter and John come back and said, yeah, you know the people who put Jesus to death and nailed him to a cross who died in agony? Uh, they've warned us, stop speaking about Jesus. When they heard this, verse 24, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, it's terrifying. The council have warned that they will kill us if we keep preaching about Jesus. We know that they've already killed your son, and we know that they have the power to kill us too. Please help, is not how they pray. They pray, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why on earth do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate did meet together with the Gentiles uh, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they just did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Do you see how different their prayer is? You're the sovereign Lord. You're the almighty God of Isaiah 40. You made the earth and the heavens. And even the, even the threats these people are making, they're the very things you predicted in your word. All of this is within your control, Lord. So, Lord, help us. Help us to keep serving you with boldness 
and courage. When you know God like that, you can get on with serving him, free from having to control everything, free from the concern of what might happen. God will determine that. We just get to serve him. Trust him, and as you go to bed tonight, you can say, and as you leave tomorrow, the house, you can say, and on Monday when you go to work or to school, you can say, I do not know what the future holds. I don't know what's going to happen today. But I do know who holds today. And more than that, I know that he is good. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, uh, we thank you that although there are real fears, and we do live in more dangerous times than perhaps we imagined we would, we thank you that you're a God who is not just a God for um, gentle meadows and for safe neighbourhoods. You're a God of the battlefield. You're a God of the raging seas. You're the God who we can trust in everything and anything. And we pray that, like those believers in Acts 4, we would remember who you are and we would remember that everything that we see and that makes us anxious has been predicted by your word and is controlled by your hand. And so we pray that you would free us from anxiety and help us to live trusting you, confident that you will bring us safely through all the trials of this world into your paradise kingdom forever. Amen.